Hello and welcome to Polity Matters, episode 5. My name is Ben Ratliff. I'm joined by Scott Edberg and Jared Nelson. Today on the show, we're considering the first chapter of the PCA Book of Church Order, The Doctrine of Church Government. Before we jump in, I wanted to catch up with the guys, see what's going on. In particular, interested uh, in anything fun y'all have been reading. Jared, what's what's been on your shelf lately? Uh, lately, I've been making my way uh, again through The Bruised Reed by Sibs. Um, decided to incorporate this into elder training uh, so that we are both learning uh, the confession and the BCO, but uh, also a little bit of how do you apply that in a way that doesn't just know all the answers, but uh, gives Christ to lean on. And so it's that's been um, really helpful, uh, I think, to me, just to, to get into something that uh, you're getting a lot of applied theology and um, has been good for the soul lately. Good to hear. Good to hear. Scott, try to read something. Maybe we'll ask you that question in the future. Yeah, I don't read. I was going to say something for Jacob Gerber. I was going to say I'm reading like Robert's Rules of Order, newly revised or something, since that's what he reads. Um, but I'm not I'm not that nerdy. Sorry, Jacob. Um, I'm reading like Lord of the Rings. <laughs> oh, Is that good for the soul, too? That's good for the soul. Mortifying the rings of my life. Let's not waste any time. Let's jump straight in. BCO chapter one, paragraph one, says the scriptural form of church government, which is representative or Presbyterian, is comprehended under five heads. The church, its members, its officers, its courts, its orders. Just to start with, I think it's so significant that we uh, pay attention that our BCO says that scripture gives a form of church government. And so right out of the gate, we have to disagree with any position that would suggest that Scripture is silent on the government of the church. Uh, we have to disagree with any any position that would say that church government is designed entirely by men. Uh, we have been handed a form of church government from the Scriptures, and the Scriptures say that it is Presbyterian. What stands out to you guys about this this paragraph as we start talking about this chapter? I appreciate how it's organized. Um BCO 1-1 gives you uh, the five heads on how our church is organized, and then each of the, the subsequent uh, sections defines it in greater detail. And then later on, as we go through these first nine chapters or so, you see oh, the first um, whole section of the BCO deals with further defining these. And so it's kind of like John 1, where if you sp if we spend too much time here today focusing on these five heads, we will have no content um, for the rest of the um, the season, as, as it were. Just like if you over-preach, perhaps John 1, 1 to 18, you've hit all the major themes of the Gospel of John. Um, and so I, 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 it's very introductory um, in defining the government, and it only gets deeper and deeper the further you read. I think it's worth mentioning that it uses the word Presbyterian in the very beginning. Some people don't know what that means. They may say they go to a Presbyterian church and you say, what does that mean? They have no idea. Um, but that's actually, if you are reading through the old King James version of the Bible, you'll come across the word presbytery, uh, where uh, Paul is telling Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, 14, uh, do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given to you by prophecy. Uh, when the uh, presbytery, 
uh, or in Latin, uh, presbyteri, or the Greek uh, presbyterion. Uh, those are horrible pronunciations, but uh, lay their hands on you. So uh, the King James Version actually uses the word um, presbytery there, and it's the collection of elders. It's the, the group of elders together. And so when we see the church functioning, we see not just one elder, not just some bishop, but a, a group of elders uh, that are getting uh, together to do this. And um, I think if you want to know more about why does it say uh, prophecy there, you can uh, you can read Perkins, uh, The Art of Prophesying, which was not telling the future, but preaching, uh, the ministry of the word. And so the ministry of the word, the presbytery and ordination all come into view there uh, and are are important right, at, right off the bat in 1-1 of the BCO. I appreciate you pulling the Latin out there because I know that I speak English most of the time, but I think and dream in Latin. And so it's very helpful. Uh, it's, it's a... Thank you. Thank you. I do have a question for y'all by way of discussion. What, um, what's the significance here? When, when, when our BCO states that the scriptural form of government is Presbyterian, is our BCO suggesting that other forms are not scriptural or at least suggesting that they're less scriptural than Presbyterian form? Doesn't the confession say something about like synagogues of Satan or something? Uh, I'm just kidding. That 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 is uh, when you think about church government, it's not as essential part of what makes a church a church. Um, we do not believe being in a Presbyterian government is essential to being a member of the true church. And so, uh, I like what Bannerman. I was reading Bannerman this week. Uh, he was discussing. Um, this sort of distinction. And he said, there's an important distinction between what is necessary to being of a church and what is necessary to its well-being. And in the latter part of that, I be we believe that, nope, uh, we believe that uh, it is essential to its well-being, that Presbyterian government lends itself not only from the scripture, but to the well-being of the church. It's how God has ordered the church. And for those who have uphold it, uh, it is for the well-being of the church. And so it's not to say that you're not a part of a true church if you're a Baptist or something similar to that, but you could have greater well-being <laughs> if you were part of a, a system that was more scriptural. And if you want more discussion on that topic about churches, uh, especially those as you get out from the Presbyterian church, tune in next time when we talk about Book of Church Order Chapter 2, about the visible church defined, and I'll just reference it here briefly before we discuss at length next time, but but BCO 2.2 suggests that true churches are those which maintain the word and sacraments and their fundamental integrity, and we're to recognize them as, as branches of the church of Jesus Christ. And so if you're not Presbyterian, it doesn't mean you're not a true church. Um, it just means you're not as blessed as the rest of us. Or as Harry Reader would say, you don't have to be Presbyterian to go to heaven, but why risk it? <laughs> Oh, and now I really want the Witherow quote about Presbyterianism, but I can't think of it off the top of my head. Um, yeah, I, I think Harry Reader stole it from this, like, and just made it more of a readerism. There is such a thing as being a Presbyterian without being a Christian, and it is possible to be a Christian without being a Presbyterian. Depend upon it. It is best to be both. Thomas Witherow. And in the interest of always being marketing, uh, you can tune in for the second season of uh, of Polity Matters in, in the, when are we doing this? In the late fall, into the wintertime, we're going to study Thomas Witherow's Six Principles of the Apostolic Church. So come back for more. I'm appalled that you have, that you have dust jackets on your books. 
is absolutely despicable. Uh, the moment you said, what does the back of the book say? I looked at my book and I thought, it says nothing as it should. <laughs> Wrong with you people. We need RC Sproul here. Anything else on one? We could talk about the types of government, right? There are other types of government. Uh, it seems that Jared knows all the fancy names for each of the types of government. So we <laughs> can you tell us all the types of government? <laughs> uh, well, while others um, such as Samuel Miller might have four, we usually talk about three, which is Congregationalist. There's uh, Presbyterian and there's Episcopalian. Uh, rule by congregation, rule by elders, or rule by uh, a bishop. So you think of uh, Epis- Episcopalianism as that form of government that you'd find in Episcopalian church, uh, some Methodist churches. Um, you'd find a uh, Presbyterian form of government in a lot of Reformed churches, or you kind of have a form of it in the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod, and then Congregationalist churches, a lot of non-denominational uh, Baptist uh, churches, independent churches. You had a real highbrow way of defining one of those or describing one of those. What was that word you used a few minutes ago? Don't ask him to remember things that he has said. (laughs) Uh, Never mind. We could just cut this then. (laughs) I don't cut anything. I don't know what anybody's talking about. Let's move on to paragraph two. The church which the Lord Jesus Christ has erected in this world for the gathering and perfecting of the saints is his visible kingdom of grace and is one and the same in all ages. We could start on the the twofold work of the, the, visible, uh, the visible church to gather and to perfect. So it's, uh, the twofold work here is evangelistic in nature. It is calling people in and it is sanctifying in nature. And so it is perfecting uh, the body of Christ, something that obviously we don't see fully in our lifetime or in any lifetime until the Lord returns, but uh, that is the work of the visible church. Sometimes we get confused and, and you might ask, well, what is the mission of the church? What is the work of the church? It's twofold. It's to gather and to perfect. It is to evangelize and um, to lead people to growing in Christ through the ordinary means of grace. Um, We sometimes have mission drift in the church where the church takes on all sorts of other uh, uh, works, but those aren't, that's not the work of the visible church. Uh, It is to gather and to perfect. What does it mean here when it talks about the church being Christ's visible kingdom of grace? Ramsey just points out the church is a kingdom having Christ as king, um, meaning a you know, you, you trace through Presbyterian uh, convictions, and you may say that they were kind of the uh, progenitors of uh, Republican or Republic idea of government, but actually, um, everybody within the church should be a monarchist. Um, some of the uh, old churches in Scotland, you'll notice we have a steeples in some of our churches that will have a, a cross on the top, and uh, many of their churches will have actually a crown at the top uh, to assert the crown rights of Christ. And um, uh, we talked quite a bit about that in the very first uh, heading of, of the preface um, about what that means. But the, the church is especially where we recognize that we are not a legislature, that we can make our own rules uh, that are, are binding on people, but we recognize the rules uh, that have been uh, passed down to us by our King. It's worth noting in this paragraph, the 
to reference back up to the title of the, the chapter, the doctrine of the church government, this paragraph limits the, the government of the church to the, the visible kingdom of Christ. Um, the, the government of the church is not intended to govern the invisible church, but, but the visible church. And so this, and this certainly speaks to matters of discipline and membership. We don't know for sure who every Christian is in the world. But we know who's professing to be a Christian, and the government of the church is for them as they associate together uh, with their families. We'll get more into that, the differences between visible and invisible, as we work our way through the next few chapters. Um, it, it seems the end of that as well, to talk about the church being one and the same in all ages. Um, it would be much harder to affirm this if you were coming from a dispensational background that has a hard distinction between Israel and the church, and to say that the God's people in the Old Testament was one thing, and the church is a completely different thing. Uh, but in fact, many of the analogies, such as um, the people of God being the bride, uh, are are in the Old and the New Testament. And so there is a unity, an essential unity, so that actually when we're talking about biblical foundations for church government, that's important because we can cite the Old Testament too. Uh, we can see where there, how elders functioned and how um, the the people of God were supposed to uh, order themselves uh, within this church um, element. Um, and, and we can cite that too. So we're not just saying that the church was something completely new, completely separated um, at the founding and Pentecost, but that it has older roots than that. Paragraph two also speaks well, to some degree to the spirituality of the church. Scott, is it an appropriate question for me to ask uh, for you to tell us what the spirituality of the church is and yeah, uh, Ramsey has a, a section on it in his commentary, uh, and he, he talks about this, about BCO 1-2, uh, for it is not the office of the church to do good, to uh, to do all good in human society, nor even to work upon all men, except so far as it does this in working upon the class, the saints. Uh, for them, it is... It has two things to do. First, to gather them, and then it goes on to say to perfect them. It is a reminder that, as I said perhaps even just a few moments ago, um, about the, the work of the church being twofold, uh, the spirituality of the church uh, legislates uh, what are the sorts of things that the church should be involved with. Should the session have oversight over soup kitchens and and goodwills? Um, well, is that appropriate? Uh, and it's it to me how I would understand that is it's setting guardrails on what areas the church are to involve themselves with in as it relates to the mission work of the church. And so mission of the church, spirituality of the church, they work together towards what is the main goal and work of the church. It is not merely social. We hear that in our culture and society. Well, if the church just did more for the poor, uh, just generally, and I'm not saying Christians shouldn't do things for the poor, but is that the main mission of the church? Uh, no. Is it a good thing? Yes. I encourage all my uh, congregation to exercise the grace of liberality, not only within the bounds of the church, but throughout society itself. But is that the work of the church, capital C? Uh, is that what the session has oversight over? Uh, I would leave that to encouraging my congregation that protects their consciences to not involve themselves in something they might disagree with. Um, but it also sets your focus right. The focus is on Christ the head as the king, and we are evangelizing the world in his name. That's that's our work. Dear listener, you might have uh, just gotten 
the value of your admission right there. That was uh, that's good. Let's move on to paragraph three. The members of this visible church, Catholic, are all those persons in every nation, together with their children, who make profession of their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and promise submission to his laws. There's a little bit of overlap here with uh, paragraph one of chapter two, when we begin talking about the visible church. Let's, let's tease this out a little bit. Here we get a, the, our first definition of the membership of the church in the PCA. One element of that that is worth mentioning is towards the end, uh, where it talks about um, that it was together with their children. There's, there's a note from Ramsey that I think is interesting and I'd want to ask him a follow-up on, because I've, I've heard this debated some, uh, but Ramsey's um, take on this was, uh, not only are all persons making this profession members of the church visible, but their children also. This includes the children of parents that reject infant baptism, for it is not baptism that makes them members. Baptism recognizes the membership that exists before baptism is administered. Um, now, this is one way to say, why do we baptize infants? Because they're already, we're recognizing that they're already part of the visible church. Um Though it does uh, run into some questions of what do you do with Exodus 4 and how great a sin it is to neglect it, or even uh, Genesis uh, 17, uh, 14, uh, where there is a, a cutting off of any of the the, the males who uh, seem to that rejected or have broken my covenant by not submitting to the sign. Um, so you might assert, well, that means a willful rejection, um, or maybe that's a bit of discontinuity there. But it's it's interesting that at least within the Southern Church, uh, the idea of why do we baptize infants is because we they're already members and we're recognizing the fact that they're already members by virtue of the fact that they are born to uh, to a believer um, following 1 Corinthians 7. Uh, just one believing parent means that they are, in a sense, holy, that is covenantally in uh, the covenant of grace. What's interesting in our BCA too, continuing in this something uniquely in the Southern tradition, is that this includes adult unbelieving children um, as well. And so we distinguish in the PCA between communing and non-communing members. Those who are communing are those who have professed faith uh, publicly, and they are received by the body as members. Those are, who are non-communing are the children of believers who are baptized, and that includes those who are infants. But our BCO, as some might find this odd, that goes all the way through to adulthood. And our constitution actually um, challenges the session to to pursue those who are adult non-communing members who have yet to profess faith, pursue them vigilantly. Um, and so I had a friend ask me, like, do we remove those folks? And I said, well, you probably just remove them when they ask to be, because they are in, in, the, in the larger sense, uh, they are still non-communing members. Uh, in the church until they have spurred off and said, "I no, remove me from the role. Stop shepherding me. We don't want this. And so that's an interesting, perhaps it's unique to, I think, RBCO and the PCUSs as well. There's a great line here at the end of, of paragraph three that adds a lot of weight to church membership, that it's not just those who, um, who profess faith in Christ that have gathered together, but they also are promising submission to Christ's laws you know, membership in the church is not, as we see in so many places um, and times, it's it's not just a country club kind of gathering. We're not just together socially because we kind of walk the same way or we, we say we believe the same things. We're not just together because we like to listen to the same lecturer every Sunday morning. We're together because we've promised 
to walk together in the laws that Christ has given to us. And so there's, there's a heft as it were to being a member of the church. There's, there's a, a promise um, by your membership that you're going to walk with these people in the ways that Christ has established for us. And so being a member of the church is not a, a, a small thing. It's actually a, a rather serious matter that we've, we've gathered together um, with Christ to follow after him uh, with one another. There's a connectionalism there too, mm-hmm. as well. I mean, you look at the church Catholic, meaning um, throughout the world or universal or some sort of a unity that's there. And are, are those persons in every nation? So <clears throat> even though we're in the PCA, which is Presbyterian church in America, which includes a little bit of Canada too, um, maybe in preparation <laughs> for us eventually annexing them, but um, it's, it's not just um the, the church in America as if that's the only place that it exists. There's there's this recognition of a universality to the church. And we may uh, be in different denominations because of language. In fact, we're in Napark with a church that is um, uh, primarily French speaking. But um, e- despite that, we recognize them as parts of the true church or the, or the, the Catholic, the universal church. Um, and I think that's maybe important to emphasize today in which there's a lot of talk about um, the, a national or ethnic flavor to uh, the church or, or nature to the church, but this is saying, no, uh, the church goes beyond ethnic or national identities, uh, even beyond our denominational borders, that we share a unity that when we gather, we think, um, I mean, because of the time changes, um, there has been people in probably, what, 20 other time zones that have, have been worshiping using some of the same language, uh, some of the same Psalms, uh, the same God that we have in the same church even if we're in a different denomination. Let's move on to paragraph four. The officers of the church by whom all its powers are administered are, according to the scriptures, teaching and ruling elders and deacons. Yeah, paragraph four establishes rather clearly for us that we are a two-office denomination. We have elders and deacons. Um, but but before we even talk about those in particular, it's it's worth noting that power does not proceed in the church from the officers, but it is administered by them. This is that sort of uh, monarch idea that Jared was referring to earlier, um, that we we minister on behalf of our king. Uh, it, it references back to the beginning of the preface, that it belongs to his, that is Christ's majesty from his throne of glory, to rule and teach the church through his word and spirit by the ministry of men. And so this paragraph of chapter one refers to those men through whom Christ has chosen to minister, teaching and ruling elders and deacons. Um, and, and so again, back to preface one says that he, he, Christ immediately exercises his authority and enforces his own laws in this way. Uh, maybe you guys can, can differentiate for us between ruling and teaching elders and deacons and talk about the, the roles that they play. Maybe as part of that, uh, it would be good to talk about the difference between two and three offices, because this language has actually changed a bit from the PCUS um, in that the PCUS language talked about ministers, ruling elders and deacons, and this says teaching and ruling elders. And so um, some may not know, but there is a debate in Presbyterianism over uh, two or three or even four offices. How many offices are there in the church? Um is it that there are elders and deacons, or is it that there's elders, deacons, and that pastors or ministers are uh, of a completely different office, uh, or it are elders and uh, pastors or those that are 
doing the sacraments of two different classes. And so the PCA uh, believes in a two office form, or at least that's what the uh, BCO lays out that has uh, elders uh, in the distinction of teaching elders and ruling elders. And um, you have that distinction made in first Timothy five uh, 17. Uh, you will see them referred to as those who teach and those who rule. Um, but uh, this language I think was, was changed in order for us to emphasize that we believe in um, two offices and that becomes significant, at least for some polity matters uh, later on. The parody of, of elders is also important in this regard. Now, one of my favorite things about the PCA when you think about this is that the pastor is not the CEO, at least in theory. Uh, he's the moderator of the session, and he is um, one of the group. He is not the sole leader. And that dynamic can change from church to church uh, naturally, but the BCO seeks to protect, I think, the church from uh, a clericalism where the pastor is the one that leads and does everything, and it's his way or the highway. Uh, having two offices where teaching and ruling elders are of one office shows the parity of elders, I think, better than even the three office view. And so it, I, I love it. I love that the session works together on issues and that the whole weight of the work of the church doesn't rest upon um, a single individual outside maybe Christ's shoulders. I, I've gone back and forth of what what makes practical and um applicable sense and two and three offices but i always go back to uh like in the pastoral epistles when uh, paul is writing and he's writing to the the philippians and he writes to the overseers and the deacons there seems to be two offices uh within uh the biblical witness and so there was a big debate about this in the founding of the pca where we're going to be two or three office and ended up in two office and i think that's good in terms of our biblical fidelity to do so and then i think there's some uh we outline more of the differences in between chapter eight and chapter nine. So you'll get a little bit more of what's the difference of the duties of a deacon and what's the duties of a, of an elder uh, in those two BCO chapters. But Jared, why, why can't ruling elders administer the sacraments? That's, that's a debate. In fact, um, the RPCNA is also a two office church and they've struggled with this too, and come to some different conclusions at different times. Uh, but some of that old language of the minister we find in the rest of the BCO that uh, a minister of word and sacrament is only the teaching elder. And so they're able to do uh, the sacraments uh, in some uh, states. Um, you have to be a minister of word and sacrament in order to perform a wedding. And so only teaching elders would be able to do that uh, as well. And so that's why sometimes uh, it's called uh, two and a half office um, and that there is this distinction. And some sometimes the line is thinner and sometimes it's thicker. Y'all good on four. I need to ask Scott a question. Do you want me to ask you a question sometime, Scott? No, no. Don't ask me questions. I'm the question asker. Title. Title. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Paragraph five says ecclesiastical jurisdiction is not a several, but a joint power to be exercised by presbyters and courts. These courts may have jurisdiction over one or many churches, but they sustain such mutual relations as to realize the idea of the unity of the church. What is this paragraph talking about? It would help to define what we're talking about between several and jointly. 
And I like to think about it as individual versus uh, together or in a group. Um, so what it's talking about is the different ways in which elders function either by themselves, things that they can do on their own because they are an elder versus things that they have to be in a session in order to do. Um, so actually BCO 3.2 will outline some of these things. Um, it says in there, there's these things like uh, in preaching the gospel, administering the sacraments, reproving the erring, visiting the sick, comforting the afflicted. These are individual things. You don't you don't have to take the entire session to the hospital room. You can do that um, just just the person uh, particularly, right? Um, the um, it, when you're doing baptism, you can just have one person that's doing it. The whole session doesn't have to put their their hands in the water or something. Um, in other words, the, the the elder doesn't have to call the session for all those things. But uh, there are certain things uh, in which they have to do things jointly, which uh, particularly looking at uh, the the judgment or adjudication of a case. Um, your pastor or just a ruling elder in the church, if you make them mad, can't say, I excommunicate you, and then you're excommunicated. If that's ever happened in your church, uh, that that wasn't done decently or in order. Um, they have to do church discipline and these things together jointly in a group. Uh, there's certain things that they that an individual elder does not have the authority to do, but when they go together, uh, they can exercise those things. I think it is a, a, a blessing to the church to have this distinction between several and joint uh, sometimes and we're all tempted to we all have the temptation to do this but to speak on behalf of a group um sometimes when the pastor speaks they assume that the session's authority is behind him and it is a good reminder to speak carefully and in, in that regard um because of this joint rule and so and sometimes People love to act jointly, severally. Uh, it's just natural for us to, to try to speak with that authority. So it puts breaks. It's some good guardrails um, to protect our, our churches and those who submit to the oversight of the session. Um, that one elder can't, I mean, he can make your life difficult, I suppose, um, but he doesn't have the authority in himself to cast you out. And you have the right recourse for that, so... That power being exercised jointly, um, the, the second sentence of this paragraph gets into that these courts have jurisdiction over the churches. Um, Almquist, when he talks about this, is very helpful, makes a good distinction that we've made earlier on when we were talking about um, the king and head of the church. Pair writes, the, the body of elders gathered to govern the church is termed a court, not because it handles only judicial cases, but to reflect the nature of church power as declarative and not legislative. It's a very interesting point that, that was helpful even for me as I think about it, that we, we call it a court of the church, not as I would imagine most people think of it because it's a judicial body, which it is. I mean, there, there is a, a judgment that is rendered um, by the, the session at times and the Presbytery and the General Assembly, but it's called a court mainly and, and primarily because we're designating it apart from a legislative body. Christ has legislated his law. He has given us his law. We're a court because we declare what he has um, legislated already. We, we uh, bring to bear his laws in the life of God's people as his ministers. Uh, we do not write new laws to bring to bear in the life of, of Christ's people. Paragraph six, the ordination of officers is ordinarily by a court except in the case of ordination by a presbytery's evangelist. Well, this is pretty straightforward. 
Normally, men are ordained by a court of the church, whether you're a ruling elder or a deacon ordained by your session, a teaching elder ordained by your presbytery, except there's a situation in which you may be ordained by a presbytery's evangelist. Um, one of y'all want to explain exactly what that's referring to? Well, sometimes in unique circumstances, I don't even know how many evangelists the PCA has, probably like under 10. Uh, I don't think there are a lot. Presbyteries are slow to give this title to anybody because of the amount of authority that is vested into one person. And so say if we are seeking to plant a PCA church in Taiwan or something, and there's no local jurisdiction, a presbytery stateside might give him the office of evangelist, which allows that person to ordain individuals uh, and to act in some ways jointly uh, on behalf of a church that he is establishing. Uh, it's very rare, I think, for this to happen. I was talking to one of my friends who who is an evangelist, and his church, or his presbytery is reluctant, even though he's his closest church is hundreds of miles away, is to fly to presbytery every time. Um, but it's a very unique and rare circumstance uh, in the church where the, the person, the individual is, I call him by joke, uh, the, the bishop, uh, the, the pope, the Pope of Utah, um, because of his status. And so it's kind of this uh, trying to make uh, 1 Timothy 4 14 work with Titus 1 5. Um, so in 1 Timothy 4, you have uh, the elders together laying on of hands, and yet uh, Titus is told uh, to appoint elders. And it seems to be that distinction that Titus was on the mission field, he was. Uh, in a unique circumstance that Titus or that Timothy in an established church that he's following Paul and uh, is not in. And I've actually, I, I struggled with that of like, how do I understand this in Presbyterian versus uh, Episcopal government? And um, it actually helped me hearing Dan Iverson once who uh, was the director in uh, NTW uh, mission to the world um, Japan saying that, when he read Titus one, he says, ah, this is me. This is the church planner. This is the evangelist. And so this applied more on the mission field um, there uh, than uh, perhaps we know about here in the States, because we have many more Timothys here, whereas uh, many of our Tituses are out on the mission field. Um, it also maybe explains a little bit of a, a debate that was had a couple of years ago. Um, I think it was at the 48th General Assembly talking about when, when mission to the world is doing church planting and other um, countries, uh, the the people in authority there being ordained elders, and some of that goes back to Titus one five of saying, um, MTW may have a lot of different things that they're doing, especially in mercy ministries that other people may uh, be in charge of. But when it comes to this, it seems like Titus one five is in effect here that uh, there's an elder that's overseeing the planting of churches, which would necessitate officers and and um, that sort of structure to be uh, to be done in that circumstance. All right, our final paragraph of chapter 1, paragraph number 7. This scriptural doctrine of presbytery is necessary to the perfection of the order of the visible church, but it is not essential to its existence. Simply put here, the BCO is recognizing other churches as true churches, even if they aren't Presbyterian. Um, we may even go so far as to say the BCO would recognize the ordained officers in those churches, even though they aren't Presbyterian elders or deacons. But there may be a little bit more here. Either one of y'all want to want to jump in? Well, this is telling us that of those other forms of government, 
uh, Congregationalists and Episcopalians. Uh, they can be churches too, but are to some degree malformed. Um, so it says it's not essential to its existence, but to its perfection. Uh, it just makes me think of um, Westminster Confession 25, 5, where it talks about the purest churches under heaven are subject to mixture and error. Uh, some of that error makes them into synagogues of Satan. Uh, others are just things that we disagree about, but they still can be a church. Uh, that would tell us that the particular form of church government is not something that necessarily means that it has devolved uh, or has deformed it so it's no longer recognizable as a church. You can still have the preaching of, of the gospel there, the sacraments and, and church discipline, uh, but uh, to its perfection, it would be better if it was more biblical and it was Presbyterian. And the, the usage of Presbytery here is not saying like the regional body. It's a generalized term that's talking about the courts of the church. And so this is this includes the local session, but also includes the assembly. And so it's the whole system um, that's in view when one seven says this doctrine of presbytery. Uh, it is thinking of the whole system, not just merely the regional system um, that that Christ has uh, instituted in his scriptures. Well, this has been Book of Church Order, um, Chapter 1, The Doctrine of Church Government. Jared, I wonder if you might tie a bow and stick it on top for us to just kind of close us up. Uh, we're reminded, uh, as I think we've covered before a few weeks ago, uh, ecclesiology is theology. And so it's part of the reason as we're going through this, it actually, we're doing a lot more theology than the particular rules or how do you file a complaint yet, uh, because church polity is important to our theology and that uh, church is the soil in which we grow in our sanctification. And so we have to understand how it works and it helps us in how we are growing and we must have the church in order to grow. Well, as Jay Gresham Machen would say, this podcast is over. We hope that you've enjoyed this episode of Polity Matters. And we know that um, we know that many of you wake up in the mornings to Larger for Life, a, uh, a companion podcast that we all enjoy. Perhaps we have been helpful at the end of a day to lull you off to dreamland. If you're interested in learning more about anything we spoke about, check out the show notes in your podcast player or at politymatters.org. If you've enjoyed the show, consider following us on Twitter and Facebook at Polity Matters and subscribe in your podcast app of choice. Scott Edberg is a senior minister of Providence PCA in Troy, Illinois, and you can find him on Twitter at S. Edberg. If you're looking for Jared, he's the pastor of New Life Presbyterian Church of Hopewell Township, and he's on Twitter at Brother Nelson. He's also an editor over at Presbyterian Polity, and you can find him writing around the internet from time to time, so be on the lookout. I serve as the associate pastor at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cleveland, Mississippi. I'm on Twitter at underscore Ben Ratliff and on Sermon Audio under Benjamin Ratliff. Thanks for listening. Be sure to tune in next time when we discuss BCO Chapter 2, The Visible Church Defined. See you all next time. Oh man, I meant to put something. I meant to say something about people tweeting books at Scott that he should try to read. Um, books appropriate for his his age level. You know what? I can still get it in there. You know, uh, let's uh, and 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 any of y'all out there that want to tweet at Scott, it's at uh, S Edberg on Twitter. Please tweet any book recommendations you have for him, especially those that would be appropriate for his young age level. Thank you. <laughs>